Hello, my name is Jake Trapp, and this is The Way in All Things. On this podcast, I interview people who have discovered their path and have chosen to stay the course. And through hearing their story, their inner and outer experiences, hopefully we can gain a sense of what it means, and more importantly, what it feels like to be engaged in the pursuit. I want to get to the heart of things. I want to know what it takes to grow something from nothing, what it means to be a professional. As Musashi says, make today a victory over yourself of yesterday, tomorrow a victory over those of lesser skill, and step by step walk the thousand mile road. My name is Jake Trapp, and this is the way in all things. <clears throat> cool. All right, Ron, well, who are you? Like, how did you become what you are? And give us your backstory. <laughs> um... Uh, Your full backstory. Yeah, right. I'm Ron Baller. I was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois. Um, I'm an author and a producer, and I'm based in currently based in New York City. And uh, my latest book is called Hubble, Hummison, and the Big Bang, The Race to Uncover the Expanding Universe. It's out on Springer. You can buy it on Amazon. And uh, yeah, I, that's pretty much the basics anyway of the story yeah so did you when did you become a writer what was the how did you fall on that path well i think most writers will tell you this um and you can see behind me musical instruments kind of my twin love is music i, I graduated from the university of denver with two degrees music and literature um and i think most writers will tell you though that that they were probably writers from as soon as they could learn as soon as they learned to write this is something that attracts you to story I mean I don't think that you I think you get I mean maybe in maybe in high school I guess I started to see um you know something in story that that made made sense to me and then Mm -hmm. uh in college especially by the time I was going to college, obviously, I wanted to be a writer because I was entering into English lit and and <laughs> learning the ropes of creative writing. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just I think it's just something that calls you a bit. I don't I mean, I don't mean to be too uh, esoteric about it, but it's, you know, the I think you I think you do just kind of know. I don't, I don't think a lot of writers decided on writing as a. Oh, well, I could do this. I don't think, you know, I think you're a writer and then you have to figure out how to do that in a way that's competent. Yeah. So do you, did you like just take a writing class and you just felt like, Oh, this is interesting. And there's the interest kind of fire started building or cause you kind of have to know what writing is before you can be interested in it. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I read some, you know, yeah. uh, and, uh, and, and I, and I obviously went through the full four plus years of college, um, getting my degree, my bachelor's degree. Um, wow. uh, but I have never actually taken a writing course outside of college. I had, yeah. have not chosen that road. I chose mm-hmm. the road of right. And there are kind of two schools on this. There are a lot of people who, um, join groups and and can and get you sometimes they get um uh uh, sponsored to go on writing retreats and some of the better writers and people who are 
you know, have, have had a good, good run in college careers often do that. And many of my friends are that way. Um, and then there are others, you know, the Edward Albies of the world who just start writing, you know, and, and you start writing one genre and you decide whether or not you're any good at it. And if the answer is no, <laughs> you move on to the next yeah. one. And I think, you know, that's, I think why they, you know, you hear a lot of people saying, um, you know, things like, well, you have to write every day. What you're really doing is trying to figure out what, you know, kick the tires. This is a big, mm. this is a big world writing, obviously. Yeah. Various kinds of journalism. Some people do very well in the short story world. Um, uh, you know, children's is huge. I mean, children's horror now is getting to be a thing. So there are just, you know, there's so many avenues that you can go down. Um, but, you know, what I did was I just started writing. I, I wrote every day and I wrote, you know, on the train and I was here in New York when I was really, really ramping up. I wrote on the train. I wrote between, you know, I wrote in my breaks. I wrote, you know, screenplays and poetry and short stories and, mm -hmm. you know, and um, and then, you know, figured out one or two that seemed like they fit me and moved on from there. Hmm. Yeah. So you said, I think in the other podcast, you did children's books and now this book is kind of more sciencey and biography. -y -y. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. These last two and they really came out of nowhere. You know, that was, you know, that was an interesting thing because I really was set to go down the children's fiction uh, path and I'm still there I still have some stuff that I, I'm getting ready to take off the shelf and dust off but um, it was it was just one of those uh, one of those things I've always been attracted to the stars I think we all are yeah and you know I just um, at some point I, I read this story about this guy Milton Humison and I realized there was a this was an unfinished uh, part of the history and a relevant mm -hmm. one. I mean, you're talking about a guy who I now know, I didn't know exactly at the time, but yeah. um, a guy who's a cult figure, but without whom Edwin Hubble wouldn't be a name. I mean, yeah, Hubble couldn't do what he did without Hummus and vice versa. So he was, he's hugely relevant. <laughs> and mm -hmm. and his work i mean he's he's not no he's not well he wasn't well known and so i had to go i just felt like i needed to uncover it that was that yeah was yeah it's uh well because he's kind of i read a little bit about him he's just kind of derping around just kind of oh i like i like the mountains so i'm gonna go skid and deer and carry people's stuff up to them and just uh, be a pack mule with a bunch of pack mules and uh and yeah I, I don't think he had much of an education right he well not initially yeah um well he yeah yeah go ahead so what was i mean because these like you said i just looked him up on like wikipedia and did yeah. a little bit more research but there's not a whole lot i mean even on i looked on uh, hubble's wikipedia and his name is just mentioned in there very briefly, and it's just his name. I know. He's like, uh, yeah, me and uh, Humason or Humason were, whatever. The, we kind of looking at this data, think that the 
the universe is expanding further and further and you he just says his name but he doesn't there's nothing else about him in there uh, uh um yeah it's a strange strange world i mean in his day edwin hubble was probably as well known as einstein or or, or mm -hmm. very close to it i mean he really became uh extremely popular i mean he was a the darling of the Hollywood elite and rubbed elbows with, you know, Doug Fairbanks. And <laughs> um, he, he was, he was an interesting guy, you know, one of his good friends was Aldous Huxley, the writer. And mm -hmm. so he, uh, James Jeans was a, a big friend, a good friend. He was a, a very complex guy, uh, Edwin mm -hmm. Hubble. Um, not well liked in the industry and um his his name was tarnished a lot due to his personal character which was i guess you could say just in a word flawed a little we didn't get along well with people he was an irascible guy and very competitive and um and not afraid to burn bridges and mm -hmm. and it actually um in a very real way, Milton Hummison, uh, his partnership with Hummison really saved Hubble uh, a lot of headaches because Hummison was the opposite. He was liked by virtually everyone and yeah. <laughs> just, you know, this crazy storyteller. But Hummison, yes, when Hummison began his career, you know, quote unquote, before his career actually began, three years prior, um, he published, uh, I think he published. 10, 10 articles on astronomy before he actually became a bona fide astronomer. Hmm. And so he was already learning the ropes. And by the time he started working with Hubble, he would have been, a, you know, close to an old school astronomer. You know, the, the, those guys before 1950, they weren't like the astrophysicists of today where they really know the physics and the, so the theoretical stuff and the physical stuff that, you know, you, when you come up through the ranks nowadays, you, you need to know all that stuff. So Hummison probably couldn't have been Hummison today. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's an interesting story. He's, he's a real character. Um, people have written songs about him and um, musicals about him and, you know, and Hubble Hubble got a space telescope for his mm -hmm. for his effort for his trouble, and um, and the name, of course, is associated with so much of what we uh, you know the in initial findings on the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. so, like, yeah, it's long. Well, so like, what was what was his story like? Because that's all I know about him was that he's just kind of up in the mountains, and then I'll just let you tell it. Yeah, like where did he? Do you mean Milton Hummison? Yeah. Yeah, everybody likes Hummison. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, my first book was the, the biography of Milton Hummison. Mm -hmm. um, the research I've, I've been doing since 2005 now uh, really led to two books, and the most recent one being the Hubble Hummison book, where I put mm -hmm. the two of them together. Uh, mm. Yeah, he was, uh, you know, that was, I think you you alluded uh, to the idea of um you, you wanted to know what he was about and what you know what things you could reflect on what things might be useful to to your listeners 
I think mm-hmm. for Hobbeson, the great takeaway is to follow your bliss. Like he really, mm-hmm. you know, he grew up barefoot on the shores of the Mississippi River in Winona, Minnesota, um, through a through really family tragedy, he ended up moving to California with his family in 1902, uh, where they, he met uh, his uncle by marriage, a guy named uh, Henry Whitmer, who was a banker and a very rich man and, and um, really helped get, the, it was kind of a mutual thing, uh, family tragedy uh Milton's dad started working for the Whitmer family business because they had lost some uh, Henry had lost two of his brothers a brother and a brother-in-law and so there was this kind of mutual appreciation and Milt really took a liking to his uncle and vice versa a very likable guy Milt and so he ended up at Mount Wilson on this summer camp and he fell in love with it And I was just, you know, that was kind of, he really led a charmed life. Milton (laughs) Hummison, it must Mm -hmm. be said, led a charmed life. Doesn't mean there weren't difficulties, but, you know, it seemed like he just, he just had an ability to, to find his spot. He was very good at that. He didn't push it, the envelope too much. um, And he kind of let things put himself in a good spot. He worked really hard. He was smart. Uh, you know, what we would probably call today street smart. And, mm-hmm. you know, he, he fell in love with a girl who's, you know, was connected to the mountain and it's kind of a long story, but they ended up together. And, and through that, then <laughs> he ended up getting this opportunity to come back to the mountain when the telescopes were built this state-of-the-art telescope. I mean, like this, this telescope, building this telescope, you could equate very easily in terms of it's the monumental task of making it happen on this, you know, really deserted uh, mountaintop uh, to the, you know, cross-country railroad, the transcontinental. Oh, yeah. I mean, this was oh, a damn. major feat of engineering at the time. And so he went up there and he started working as a janitor. And because again, he's just a really nice guy uh, and, you know, makes friends easily. Great storyteller. He started befriending guys who were working at the observatory. They started teaching him the ropes. And that's when he discovered that he had this natural ability to make deep space photographs. And this is a very difficult thing to do these days. Not so much. I mean, yeah. modern astronomers, you just tell the telescope where you want it to go. The computers are in place. All the lenses, everything is done for you. You put your feet up and you wait for the data to come in. Yeah. Not so back then. You had to prep the slides and you had to get the right camera and you had to get the, the cage right. Cage change. It's in the book, but the cage change uh, was just, I mean, that was a job all by itself. So mm-hmm. it was very, very difficult work especially when you got into the deep deep space stuff um but he he really had this kind of um (laughs) just the natural ability like i said just this inherent ability to really get steady you know i mean we're talking about um we're talking about spectra so you've seen the the visible light spectrum right 
mm-hmm. and you see these big you know spectrums well the spectra he was getting were just a few millimeters in length hmm. so you can you can see how these had to be really clear you know i mean yeah. super clear and they took a week sometimes to get but he had the ability hmm. to do it and nobody else did that was you know and so he he made the he made his way that way and it's just a remarkable you know set of circumstances that led him on this road you know yeah i'm just curious like why would they let the janitor be messing with like these tiny little millimeter size uh things that capture deep space thing that's like this anomaly like that that would be you'd almost need security clearance to do it now (laughs) well yeah and you wouldn't you know now it's digital so there's no slides or any of that stuff but no he it would take a long time i mean you know he had to first learn how to change the cages out so he put a different focus on uh the cage um of the telescope these cages went on the end of the telescope tube and they all altered the direction of the light so you could lengthen the focus of the telescope and that allowed you to go deeper into space or closer if you needed to to get whatever you were looking for that's the basics Hmm. um and so they had to change those on this state-of-the-art telescope back then none of that happens now um Yeah, and so he had to learn all of that, and then he was learning on a really small telescope, little 10-inch telescope, how to take photographs, and he, you know, the things that he had, his natural ability, not only uh, was in his ability to be really steady with the camera, but also he was a very careful guy, and so Mm. he had the right tools, he just had to learn the craft. Mm. So was he teaching himself or like you said, the other people were kind of showing the ropes or did they? Yeah. I mean, th- that's the other thing. He's working at the preeminent observatory, finds himself, happens to find himself at the working at, as a janitor at the preeminent astro- astrophysical facility in the world at the time, mm-hmm. two of the largest telescopes in the world. And uh, all of the guys who were working there are just these, you know, I mean, they're world-class scientists. Not that there weren't others elsewhere, but he really had the top guys helping him learn this craft. So, yeah, he was able to learn the math uh, that he needed to make his coordinate, co- get his coordinates straight and fill in his, the details of his research. And slowly over time, like I said, over a, a, probably a f- four-year period. This year, actually, in September, uh, will be will mark the 100th anniversary of Humason's um, uh, becoming an astronomer officially. Hmm, dang. There's a really nice. Yeah, there's a cool story about that in the book. Yeah, and then so nice guy, hardworking, follows his interests and kind of just yeah living that life of charm or whatever and hubble is more a what just a type a kind of guy Tell yeah just hubble. a total overachiever and um yeah. uh you know hummison struggled with imposter syndrome his whole career you know he did he never quite felt like he belonged even though everybody around him said he did he you know won awards for his work and um 
very well respected in the industry. Hubble, on the other hand, was respected. I mean, I have to say he, he was definitely respected, but uh, not um, not as an individual so much as for the work for for some of the work that he had done. But he really yeah. made a lot of enemies, <laughs> and yeah. um, he was a he was a very difficult could be a very difficult guy. Uh, he was an Anglophile. Um, what is that? I don't know what that means. Uh, very British, very white centric. Mm. And he would have been, he was definitely a racist by today's standard. Mm. I mean, just very racist guy. And um, just, you know, um, he was, well, okay. So he was the son and grandson of Virginia slaveholders. Um, and a lot of that carried over in his personality. So mm. it was, a, I guess, a learned uh, behavior. Um, yeah. He wasn't super outward about that, uh, but, you know, yeah, he, both he and his wife were, but by today's standards would definitely, <laughs> by any standards would be, would have to be uh, called racist. And yeah. Um, yeah, he just was, a you know, but he was a clever observer and passionate about astronomy from a very young person mm -hmm. and so he's actually kind of a sympathetic character the the racism notwithstanding uh if you read the stories about him and you you know it's it's in the it's again i i write pretty extensively about this his character in the book and where it comes from and he said to me hubble is something of a sympathetic character as well i was like yeah um they were, you know, and especially when, well, I don't know about especially, but when they started into their research after they had made their big discovery, um, you know, these are two guys who are working at the absolute limits of space. Every time Hummison goes up the mountain, he's peering farther into space than anybody ever has. And yeah. this is like out of, this is setting new standards. And, you know, we don't know what the heck is going on in our own backyard. These guys are, you know, just kind of driving out as far as they can. And it's hard, it's, it was hard to know exactly what they were looking at. You know, Einstein, De Sitter, a lot of these, you know, a lot of the big names of the time were trying to figure out what they were, what they were looking at. You know, this yeah, what was out there. Yeah, because yeah. I guess you're right. Because, yeah, they hadn't seen that deep into space yet. No, this is stuff <laughs> we all take for granted today, but. Um, no, it, this was very cutting edge. These guys were literally working at the limits of the technology, beyond the limits of the technology in, in Hamison's case. Yeah. yeah. Cool. All right. So we left off. We were talking about uh, the difference between Hubble and Hummison and how Hummison, nice guy, people like him. Uh, Hubble be kind of a more oh, racist, but more about like, I want to hear more about like his, uh, his drive and stuff. Like, what do you think is, would you say he had drive? Yeah. I mean, uh, that's the sympathetic part, I think too. I, I, I think if he was left to his own devices as a kid, he would have been an astronomer much earlier on. He probably would have studied astronomy in college and, 
and be and already have been an astronomer pretty early in the game. He may have even wound up at Mount Wilson sooner than later. Um, but he had trouble at home. His father was an extremely religious person, and um, and he had gone to he had tried to get his law degree as a younger man and. The record isn't super clear about it, but he never really actually practiced law. And the thought is that he didn't really um, succeed. Uh, so he was actually got into the insurance game, but he really wanted Edwin to become a lawyer. And um, Edwin didn't want anything to do with law. <laughs> um, yeah. But he was, a, he was a very good student, uh, very smart and um, a decent athlete. And he ended up going to the University of Chicago for his undergraduate work. And, uh, and then later won a Rhodes Scholarship and studied at Oxford, at Trinity College in Oxford. And um, so he was, he was an excellent student, but he, he had to, and he was in love with astronomy. So he had to some he had to find a way to bridge the two, so that he was placating his father's for you know making sure that he was doing what his father wanted him to do, but at the same time keeping one foot in the door of the astronomy world, and mm -hmm. um, I think he would have struggled. I don't. I don't. It's hard to say. Um, where Hubble would have ended up had his father lived a longer life. I think he would have, I don't know. I mean, part of me thinks that at some point you just have to stand up to your parents. And I, but I'm not, it's not clear as to whether or not he would have been able to do that, but he didn't have to because his father died um, in 1912. So, he, it was only a matter of a few years then that uh, he, you know, made the decision to, to become an astronomer, to go back to college. And he excelled from moment one. He, he, was, he was an excellent observer in his own right and very good. He was a generalist and, um, and very good at... Um, I think theoretically he was a generalist, but he was a very deep, he could also be into the details. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so he kind of like, he kind of had to weigh the two, but he, was, he made very good, he was very good at connecting um, ideas. And this is what led him, he actually, he actually wrote some very good papers in college and his college thesis was very good um, uh, in, in terms of, yeah, as it turned out, eventually it was very good. Um, yeah, he was, he was an interesting guy. Like I said, very complex character, kept to himself, uh, not very well liked, but an exceedingly good and driven astronomer in his own right, mm -hmm. in, in a kind of old school way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, it, yeah, I think they're both very sympathetic characters. And of course, when they met, when they first started working together, they would, they would have been diametrically opposed, really. Yeah. You know, or, or felt they were, you know, 
here's Hubble. Hubble moved to, when he went to Oxford, he adopted a, a British accent. And, but it was really a bad one, you know, so yeah. he wasn't very good at it. And, um, you know, he, he, he spent some time in the military during World War One, but never saw any action and yet insisted on being called Major Hubble. And, um, <laughs> so, you know, there was just these quirky things about him that, you know, he insisted on, on you know, um, procedure and protocol and you know he was very into that kind of thing he wanted to be the leader and and um so it he, the other guys were resistant to that you know because the yeah. field is you know when you get into the science field uh it's it, it can it, it's a very it's a very competitive environment to begin with you know and so um yeah it, anyway yeah, he's an interesting guy, really, really very dynamic personality, Edwin Hubble. But I don't think horrible, you know, I mean, you know, I started out with the racism side of it. Um, but I don't think it was, I don't think it was that overt. Uh, I, don't, I don't think he was, you know, I don't think he resisted working with people based on that, you know, if you will. Mm. Um, and he could be very respectful of, of individuals, but there was just this underlying, you know, racism that pervaded, uh, you know, his his social, uh, you know, the way he socialized with people. Yeah, really interesting character and very different from Milton Huntsman. Yeah. So what happened when they got together to kind of balance each other out, or eventually, like? they, yeah. I mean, they, you know. Um, they came from opposite sides of the of the political fence, but I think they were both. Um, I think they both found that they had they they shared similar ground. This is a thing that people used to do. They actually found common ground. Yeah, <laughs> that's not done quite so much anymore. But uh, they actually found some of that common ground. But at first. Uh, they would have felt like they had very little in common. Milton Humason uh, was known to be able to size somebody up in just a matter of minutes, and um, he didn't. Uh, he didn't suffer fakes lightly. Uh, he, he could be. <laughs> he was a very mischievous guy, and he could. He could. He could make mischief. <laughs> he, could, uh, he was uh, he was that kind of character. Um, uh, but I think over time they realized, you know, they had some some pastimes in common. For one thing, you know, they both like fly fishing, and Hummison was just a world class of fly fisherman. It turned out, and a poker player, and hmm. um, so they 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 had the fishing in common and. And of course, they got into this project, and and that really can bring you together. You know, when you mm -hmm. when you're in a team like that, um, and especially a, a duo where you know you're both so dependent on each other uh, to to be co to competently do your job, uh, mm -hmm. it really brings people together, and I think it brought them together. Yeah, can you share like a little maybe story about the two of them being like a like a Sherlock Holmes and Doctor Watson duo type story where they kind of just a, like um, 
just something the, where they where they got together where, where they were yeah just like here. a just like kind of yeah like a story in history like this isn't like a yeah. exact reference but you know that story about uh uh winston churchill being in the whatever assembly and that the lady was like oh churchill if if you were my husband i'd put poison in your coffee and then he said without skipping a beat if you were my wife i'd drink it <laughs> you know something uh, yeah. like that just like a quirky story uh there weren't too many um between them um mm -hmm. because hubble was such a a, a closed mouth guy uh mm -hmm. they you know they, you didn't get a lot uh from hubble and so the stories um you know, the stories between them really go out to, you know, Hubble would, you know, Hubble was famously in this real tiff um, with um, one of the guys at the observatory and Hummison would smooth that over, you know, with the mm -hmm. guys and the guys would come to Hummison and go, God, what's the matter with this guy, you know, and in time when, after Hummison realized kind of who he was, you know, if Hubble talked to anybody about his personal life, it was Hummelson. Mm. That's how close they got. Uh, but he really didn't talk to other people at the observatory or even in the astronomy field about his life. He's very closed mouth about that. So mm. it's difficult to, you know, really pinpoint um, a moment uh, between the two of them. I would just say that, you know, Hummelson being this guy, uh, who really didn't like fakes having to go and talk to he was asked to go there by the 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 observatory director Walter Adams at the time to talk with Hubble about you know this observe observing project that he had in mind and mm -hmm. you know you can see Hummison walking into his office kind of going Ugh, why, why why am I saddled with this with this guy you know I mean why do I why do I have to be the one how, you know how did I how did I win this lottery through the short straw? And, you know, and there's, you know, there's Hubble in there with his pipe in his mouth with the tut tut and the what and the, you know, and he's like, yeah. you know, he's just being this pompous guy. That yeah. he and he, they had to find a way. And actually, right after the first run, Hummison goes up the mountain to go and find that he wants to get a spectrum, one of these little spectrums I told you about uh, for this deep space galaxy, by far and away the deepest, at, as far as they knew. Mm -hmm. it, 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 would, it, pro, it, was very, it was very faint, in other words. So they, they, had, some, they had done some uh, photographs of the night sky and this was the apparent magnitude, the way the star appeared, its brightness appeared, was very, very faint, even through a telescope. So this was thought to be very, probably very far away. Mm. And so Hummison went up there and you can see in the log book, you know, guys go up the mountain and they work one night and they take nine slides or 12 slides or 15 slides, Hummison himself until that point. Now he goes up in the mountain and the first night he's up there for uh, five nights. And the first night he writes in the slot, start one. Second night, quotes. Third night, quotes. 
quotes, quotes on down through five or six or seven nights. And then he would write finished one slide. <laughs> hmm. Took him days of observing to do. Yeah. So he brings the thing, he brings the thing to the, the uh, dark room on the mountain and he, and he, uh, he, um, he develops the slide and he checks it. There's this, they, they have, I don't know if I can get into all of it, but they, when they were in, they still do this. When you're checking uh, for um, velocity, what they would do is they sought out these lines, Spectra have um, these lines, the front, they're called Fraunhofer lines. They're named after uh, Fraunhofer. Um, and two of them, especially the two really bold ones are the H and K lines of calcium, way over here to the ultraviolet side of the, of the uh, uh, spectrum. And what they would do is they would, they would take a spectrum like from the sun and they would know, not from the sun, but from a star that they knew the spectra of. And then they would take this new one and they would place it above or below it. And the, if the, if the um, object they were photographing was farther away and moving at a greater velocity, it would show up on this thing, the H and K lines, the, the spectrum would be moved to the red. Hmm. And that's the Doppler effect for light. Yeah. It exists for light the same way it exists for sound. Uh, and so it, 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 when something is, when something is moved toward the red end of the spectrum, they call it red shifted. And so this is what he was doing. And he realized after he developed this slide that I hope, I hope that was enough to give your listeners a sense of it. That yeah. There's more about it in the book, but anyway, um, yeah. He went up there and he developed it and he and he was just blown away. I mean, it was so the velocity was so much greater than anything anybody had taken to that point. Mm. And Hubble was amazed by it and really wanted to continue. Well, but Hummison, it broke Hummison. I mean, he was up there for seven days peering at this tiny point of light, tens of thousands of times fainter than you can see with the naked eye. Hmm. for six seven days in the cold standing on a platform the size of a diving board 30 feet above a concrete floor this is extremely Jeez. dangerous work yeah uh, you know a, a, a guy almost killed himself falling off of that platform in the 40s this it was it was literally dangerous work to do this mm -hmm. the way they did it in the day and he was up there doing the hardest the very hardest part of it really really long exposures and so he went down the mountain he went in his sick bed and he he was ready to quit yeah. yeah so here's hubble this is probably the greatest breaking point that they ever had as a as a team and it was mm -hmm. right from moment one and hummus just, just said no i'm not going back up no I'm, there's no way you want to do more of this that was the close one you want to go, you know, like, no, just forget it. I have a lot of work to do. There's some supernovas. Uh, I'll go back to that stuff. And, uh, you know, of course, Hubble was just apoplectic and <laughs> yeah. just couldn't believe it. And they ended up 
they ended up getting George Hale involved. George Hale was the developer, the builder of the founder of the observatory and one of the great observatory builders ever. And um, he had retired at that point, but he invited Humison over to his, his house and he convinced Humison to keep going um, as long as Humison's wishes for a camera, a much faster camera uh, were, 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 were made happen. And so they, they developed this new, really, really hyper fast camera, but he kept breaking the cameras. I mean, you know, this, this guy was, he really was exceeding the limits of the technology. They would have to go back in and figure out a new way to make a faster camera, super close lens focus. And, you know, that was the only way that they could get this. That was the only way they could continue to chase these distant galaxies that were just moving away at, you know, small fractions of the speed of light. <laughs> just yeah. Really crazy, crazy stuff. So, yeah. yeah, that was that was probably their biggest the closest they came to a breaking point was moment one. <laughs> yeah, right at the start. Yeah. yeah. So anyway. Huh. Yeah. So, I mean, you're kind of, you're, this is like really getting into the science and stuff, but your background is like kind of in writing. And did you have to like learn all the science stuff? And do you feel like you're kind of, kind of versed in it pretty well now too? You seem like it. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I don't know where, where I would fall on this spectrum of astrophysics. Um, yeah. It doesn't take very long for the guys that I know in the industry to talk over my head. I mean, it's uh, it is a an ex there is so much going on. This is absolutely the golden age of astronomy. It's just um, in astrophysics. The technology is catching up to the theory in ways that are just mind-boggling. You know, um, exoplanets and pulsars and all of this stuff that's going on. Just degrees of difficulty that are that are that are you know being brought to bear on on deep space objects. It's a fascinating field. I still. Um, yeah, I mean, in the 15 to 20 years of I've been researching this, I've picked up quite a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that... I wouldn't, you know, yeah. I'm an amateur. You know, that's, yeah. that's, you know, I know a lot about the history. Yeah. <laughs> Which is an important I know, part. I know a lot about the people. That's kind of my focus. I, you know, science, like everything else, is done by people. So, and, and, and people turn out to be the, the interesting part of the thing. I mean, the science mm -hmm. is interesting, obviously, but without the people involved, it's not really a great story. Yeah. It's so a you said you, you said you were researching this for 20 years or is this, is that when the interest started? How long did you really start taking the research into these two books seriously? I found out, uh, I read, I was on a writing sabbatical after my children's book came out in 2005 in the Philippines and I was reading a book about the Big Bang and that's where I read the Humison story for the first time mm. and so that I just couldn't put it down so I started doing research I found his granddaughter I started you know pulling things together and plunking them down and making folders and I built a timeline and that was one of the first things I did this timeline was six feet long and 
I was, you know, I was like the, you know, mad scientist in the laboratory. Mm -hmm. Just I couldn't stop working on on this project until I knew I had something. And that probably started with, you know, the approval letter from from Humison's granddaughter for an interview. Mm. And at that point, I knew, you know, a door had opened and 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 so I, I, I went through it. Yeah. So did you kind of gauge or think about how long it was going to take or how much time or an effort it was going to go into it? Or were you just being led by your interest in it? Yeah, I, I, that's an interesting question. And people take different lengths of time to do things depending on how uh, this, the, the, the um, size of the project, you know, um, you a guy like Robert Caro, you know, his LBJ books, that's like a million words that, I mean, he's got three or four dozen boxes of ephemera and manuscripts. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, those are big projects, you know, um, Doris Kearns Goodwin's book on Lincoln and his cabinet is just an amazing piece. I can't imagine how big her library is for that book. Um, Hummison was a lot harder, um, you know, where there are dozens of books, dozens of boxes of material at the Huntington library for a guy like George Hale, Hummison amounted to two or three, you know? Yeah. And, uh, the, the, the head of the science department there was gracious enough to bring me in. I mean, I'm a schlub. The Huntington library, you know, this is all PhD and doctorate people are there, you know, and Mm -hmm. here's, you know, here I am. You know, because this, yeah. this crazy, crazy haired guy, I had hair at the time. And, yeah. Um, yeah, but he was just so gracious, always has been. Uh, and um, opened the door and, 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 I, and I was able to look in. But I had to do a lot of legwork for the Hummison Project. I mean, I was in the lo- local libraries in Winona and Dodge Center and uh, all over the country and I was in Hawaii for a bit and it just you know looking at different telescopes and the things that were being operated really trying to get the history yeah. uh, so it took a long long time it was a very cold path Thomason was not a writer he wasn't a speaker he did speak and he did write but he yeah. didn't like it he wanted yeah. to work and he wanted to go fishing um, <laughs> And that's just the guy he was. He wanted to be around his family and friends. And we go to the races, fine. Uh, he was just that kind of guy. So it was really hard to dig up the information on him. So it took longer to do that book, um, despite not having a lot of material. Yeah. Because I had to dig so deeply just to get, you know, some of the, you know, a a deed for the property uh, that he owned. He was a rancher before he went up the mountain. Um, Mm -hmm. He was a citrus rancher. And uh, there's a story behind that too. But he, you know, know, this kind of like fell in my lap. And then I would hear things. I would hear stories from people. I'm interviewing them and I hear a story about this ranch. What do you mean? What ranch? What, what are you talking about? Oh yeah. So I yeah. start digging that, digging that up. And you know, the census reports only go back 70 years 
and you know it would just they were just um just amazing and there were little little um clues to to the way he thought in his humanity that i had to try to unpack the best mm. i could and one classic yeah. example of that is this woman young woman writing him from vienna young jewish woman writing him from vienna in 1938 and she wrote him a letter pleading with him to sign an affidavit for a visa for her so she could escape nazi germany and i couldn't find her <laughs> at the time mm -hmm. of my first book the hummus mm -hmm. book and so i put the blurb in there and you know with, but it always bugged me that i couldn't quite unpack this well, a few years later, the census reports came out for 1940. And so I was able to go back in and find her. She actually did come over to the United States and ended up living in Ventura, California and raising a family. And so it kind of closed to an extent anyway, closed the loop on this. He got the letter. He obviously held on to the letter. And... Um, but I don't, you know, I don't have an affidavit. I don't know that he actually was the one who got her over here, but she made it here and it was important to him. So it just kind of fills in a little bit of the, hum the, the human side, the human story. And mm. so those are the things that, you know, I don't know that I'll ever be done researching Hamasen and Hubble, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a large subject. There are a lot of people out there, lots of different stories. And you just, you'd be surprised how often I have a conversation with someone who has an anecdote I haven't heard before. Yeah. <laughs> one yeah. or the other. So, yeah. Yeah. That's the Did best you ever part of the game. Yeah. Did you ever find yourself like at a low point, like maybe the trail went cold or you just kind of maybe lost your enthusiasm at all or just kind of get, you're like, what am I doing? Just like feelings of self-doubt. Did you ever have moments like that come up? I never, I never lost track. I had some, I had some bad personal life events happen to me. In fact, I would say it was the opposite. Um, I lost my, my stepfather, who was super influential to me. Uh, it in not long after I started my research. And I would say in a very real sense that Hummison was my guide star throughout mm. much of that period. Well, I was, mm -hmm. I was really very depressed over the loss of that person. And um, the research actually kept me going. Um, you know, there are times when you, you feel down because you're trying to keep a roof over your head and you, and you know you need to get back to the research, but you really can't right now. And you're waiting to get back to the, you know, it's waiting to get on a plane to go back to California. But no, never in terms of the research. I mean, first of all, the Huntington Library is, is just an incredible place to, to, to work with just really very helpful people in a beautiful environment, the botanical gardens in the back, just walking through there. That just propelled me forward. But what really propelled me forward was I just wanted to know everything I possibly could about this guy's life. And mm. So, it, no, I never really um, lost focus on that. I would say that's 
you know, if you're if you're asking about, you know, what 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 to look for, <laughs> I would say I always I, I tend to tell people that um, <clears throat> my writing clients, especially the people I mentor and, and and those kinds of folks, that writing what you know is okay, but it's far better and far more compelling to you as a writer to write what you're curious about. Mm. Um, yeah, finding a subject that you can't put down will get you to the finish line. Yeah. Well, how are you uh, organizing it? Like what's your kind of method for organizing? Like, Yeah, you... I love that question. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of, you know, I mean, like, it's like anything else, you know, while you're going through the early stages of this. I mean, I don't think there's one way, obviously. People have different ways. And these days, there are so many different platforms out there for getting and holding information. But I would say the initial, like I said earlier, initially, you're just kind of like doing a Google search, you know maybe look on Wikipedia, see what kind of stuff is out there. Look at the references at the bottom of articles so you can kind of see what books might be of interest. Start to figure out what the time frame is, the timeline and that sort of, that's why the, one of the first things I always do is build a timeline. And I build it for the actual dates. And then I usually do like 20 years or so before so that I'm, you know, because we, we are the product of our times, but we're also the product of the times that the people that raised us grew up. Yeah. In. And so I tend to, you know, I wanted to get that. And then I fill that in and I'm looking for, you know, what are the, what are the, what are the big moments that are happening that are directly and indirectly related to this story and the way that it was not just necessarily compelling the individuals in the story, but compelling you know the movement of society in one direction or another you know so mm -hmm. i start with that and and then if i decide to get into it then there are a couple of different things that i do you know obviously digital folders um bookmarks uh for 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 articles that i find that i want to reference I usually am starting not a manuscript. I don't write a manuscript, but I do write notes and I do put my references down immediately. So I don't have to con constantly go back and look for them. That's a thing that I learned over time. Yeah. Don't. What, just don't like a Word document or? What's that? Just like a Word document or what do you put it in? Yeah, Word document. Some people use uh, OneNote. Um, I like word because I can cut and paste then when I, when I actually do start my, my, my first manuscript, I will do that, you know, and, and just cut and paste them. I used to type, I'm a yeah. typewriter, but <laughs> I grew out of that. I don't, I don't, I don't want to say that people like Rob Caro still writes his in a pencil with pencil still writes his manuscripts with a pencil before he types them. Um, he can do whatever he wants. But I, <laughs> for me, I wanted, a, I wanted a simpler system. 
yeah uh, to be able to move from notes to outline to manuscript and so what i do after i have enough when i feel like i've you're never quite done researching but when i feel like i have enough to start the body maybe i have an inkling of how i want the book to be structured etc then i'll start writing down my outline and figure out what that looks like hmm. And then I'll take that outline to the publisher and say, you know, I have this idea. I think this will work. This is about how long I think from where I am now, it'll take me to get the manuscript done. What do you yeah. think? And uh, yeah. So I want to talk more about that, but say you're um, like, I mean, you could have like, can't you have like 30 or 40 pages on your Word doc and you're just like scrolling and scrolling, isn't it? Do you ever get like lost in all of that or do you kind of, you typed it in so you kind of have a feel for it? Well, I don't know. I mean, I guess you could get lost, but you know, if you're looking for something, you can just do a search. Oh, it's true. Yeah. It's, obviously. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah. So it's really easy, you know? And, and, and so I don't, no, I don't, I don't really, um, I don't worry about that too much. Um, when I'm, if I'm going, so I'm, Remember, I'm functioning from a timeline. Mm -hmm. So I will generally try to, if I'm, you know, a character driven. So I'm looking into the individual's life. So I'm trying to figure out, okay, what was going on early on, that sort of thing. So my notes tend to relate to the timeline. Mm -hmm. Not always, but yeah. they tend to relate to the timeline. And then if there's something specific I really want to notate, I'll use, you know, I can put it in bold or I can do a heading, uh, that kind of thing. I like to do a side. Sometimes I'll do, so I did this with the Hummison, the first Hummison book. I, I, I did biographies of the main characters. So I had a good sense of who they were because I really wanted to learn the personality types of all these individuals. So I did that on the side. Um, I did some work on the environment they were in. I had visited mm -hmm. Mount Wilson uh, where they were working. And so I really took no notes about what I had seen as I was tromping around on the mountain or walking up the old trail or, you know, those kinds of things, what it felt like to be there, the spirit of it, you know, to try to, because I want to involve you in that, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, the key, you know, the first thing you should always remember when you're writing is, just pre just pretend there's somebody on the other side of the screen and you're telling them the story. You mm. want to keep them interested. So what what's interesting, you know? And so yeah, so uh, you know, just little notes like that, little things occur to you. Um, I'm not. I don't keep a notebook by my bed. <laughs> I don't tell you that stuff. I usually wake up really fresh and ready to go. And so I, I do most of my especially early on, I'll do most of my writing in the morning. And uh, yeah, I'll write a book, usually write a book three times. Before you are ready, before it's ready. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, it's not writing the book the second two times. But you know, the first, the first book, the first time through the manuscript is, you're really getting the guts in and, you know, just trying to get the kind of like, like I said, going along that timeline, if that's the way you're going to do it, doesn't always work that way, but try to try to 
pull that together and get kind of the skeleton of the thing together of the body. And then the second time I go in, I put in, you know, a lot of the references and, um, you know, quotes and more of the, more of the kind of like the, put the meat on the bones kind of thing. And then really by the time I'm working through the book the third time, I'm writing the introduction and the epilogue. I know, I know pretty much what the book is going to, is about now. It's another thing. You should always be asking yourself when you start to write a book, why am I writing this book? Mm. If you don't, if you can't answer that question, don't start writing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's really important. Mm -hmm. Know why you want to do this. It, it, it doesn't have to be a big, complicated answer. I mean, in the case of Hummison, it was very simple. The history wasn't written. Nobody knew this mm. guy. Mm -hmm. That needed to be filled in. It was very, very cut and dry. And so I knew that. And that was what, what made, you know, I was keeping that in mind as I was going forward. But that last draft is then... And if you have an editor, you're probably going to kind of do a fourth draft too, because the copy editing process drags you through that. But it's really at that point it's written. Um, and the third one is really about it's really putting in the introduction. It's really putting you know telling people what why they're there. Um, the epilogue, your final thoughts on what has been said, and you know what you think about it because I don't you. you most, I don't think most of us, I don't know. I mean, I don't think really writers of history put in their um, opinion about what's being said. They just tell the story. So um, I do a little of that. Okay, but you're, you're talking about knowing why you're doing a project. So when you're writing a project or doing like a writing project, are you having to remind yourself constantly about that or is it? Did you just kind of from the start, you kind of like this history hasn't been written. I'm the one to do it. Here we go. Yeah. I mean, you know, like I, I said earlier, there's not one way here. And coincidentally, this is not necessarily just for research work. I mean, you write fiction in very similar ways, build a timeline, fill in your characters, write about your characters, understand the world, the environment they're going to inhabit. I mean, not everybody does it the same way, but fiction writers write in very similar ways, especially book writers. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe a, I think even when you're writing screenplays or um, stage plays, you're thinking about the environment they're inhabiting in different ways for both. But yeah, but I, I don't think it's very much different. The way people go about the craft may be slightly different from one person to the next. But no, to answer your question, I don't once I knew, I probably knew, I don't know, 10 seconds after I read the blurb about Hummison in the book I was reading in the Philippines that I wanted to write what was going on in my mind was, what is this? Eighth grade education helped Edwin Hubble discover the expanding universe. That's it? That's his life? <laughs> not possibly, right? I mean, just not, it just couldn't, I needed to know. And so it was, it was, no, I never really worried about that. The second book was very similar, actually. I had written this first book and um, a guy named Gail Christensen, uh, the late Gail Christensen, 
wrote a book about Hubble, uh, Mariner of the Nebulae. And uh, it's a good book. Uh, but he, he, he didn't really do a lot of research and, or talk a lot about hummus mm-hmm. in the book. And frankly, the way he did was he didn't understand hummus. Mm. In the same way, Carl Sagan really didn't understand hummus when he brought him up in Cosmos, mm-hmm. the original series. It's a good piece, but they really don't do hummus injustice. Mm-hmm. Um, but and not, not really their fault. They're just, again, it was just a, a cold path. So uh, the second book for me was just as easy. Okay, we have these two biographies of these two individuals, but they work together. So where is the piece where they actually are together, mm. where we compare who they were as individuals. We talk about the science, we talk about the preceding science, the things that led up to the developments that led up to the, the point at which they enter the picture so that they could actually bring this theoretical notion to bear, you know, practical astronomy to bear on this theoretical equation of Einstein's. And um, it was an obvious, you know, I mean, it just popped in my head one day. Oh, of course, we've, we haven't done that. Mm-hmm. I mean, they need to be on the same, they need to be talked about in the same uh, book sentence, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they do belong together. So, yeah, that was, it was very simple. Very, I mean, those, it's, imagine it probably is a fairly simple thing. There are, in fiction, I think, when you're talking about uh, philosophical notions, you know, um, questions that you have about the machinations of human life and where we've come, et cetera, those can be a little bit more difficult questions to answer. Uh, but I still think it's a very good idea to know, to have a, 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 a launching point. You need to answer that question for yourself. Oh. Why? am I here? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, like you so, said, it doesn't even have to be a like big, crazy answer. Uh, I think that's what, it, whenever I hear that question, I kind of know about it now, but I would think, like, Oh, why am I here? It has to be something big. Like, what am I doing? If I'm doing something, I have to have like a big, like legitimate reason why. And you know, for what I've kind of come to just like lower my expectations be like, because Either because you don't, you like, you got to write something because, yeah, no one's written about it before, or like, I'm going to do something different because I don't like the way things are this way, or I'm going to start working out because I don't like the way I look. It's just a small reason, and you don't need anything more than that. <laughs> but it has to be like, it doesn't have to be big, but it has to be like sticky and like meaningful to you. It doesn't have to be, uh, yeah, you don't gotta like change the world because you know you see yourself as a savior or something. I mean, you could be that, but you don't need yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I get where you're going though. I mean, it, it's a very being compelled by a subject doesn't require that the subject be itself necessarily very deep. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think people are intimidated by physics, but they don't need to be. Mm-hmm. It's not. In fact, I wish we taught physics in grade school to kids beginning physics so i think it would make all the math you learn later on a lot easier if you could relate it to things but you know i it's yeah i mean i think we sometimes make things that aren't that complicated very complicated and 
sometimes we try to oversimplify the very complicated <laughs> and that's just part of human life yeah too. um yeah put things in boxes you know it's, it's yeah anyway. yeah well get back to like yeah kind of more advice stuff and just in terms of your career as a writer like what do you think are what do you think people think writing a book is like versus what it's actually like like what do people kind of like you know say oh i'm going to write a book but they 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 probably have it in their heads that it's going to be this one way but what is it actually like um in your opinion i think it varies from one individual to the next um it's very it's a hard question to answer it's not easy to coalesce 60 to 100,000 words into one codified idea that if you think that going in you're in for a rude awakening it's not a simple process by any stretch um It's a, it's a lonely process, <laughs> uh, especially, you know, when you're into something that's, you know, copiously long. Uh, I have, I have different ways of condensing some of the research now. So I don't, I won't, I don't necessarily, depending on the size of the subject, need to spend 10 years developing a project now, uh, the way I did in my first book. So things do get tend to get a little bit easier when you get some traction. Uh, but the, look, writing is a, a look, you know, that's why w when I start writing, I don't write, um, I don't write around the clock. I set a schedule, I go to work, I open my computer and I start. In fact, I'm looking into keyboards that I can use with iPads and so forth so that I have a different thing that I write on mm. than what I work on on my computer, just to keep the environment separate. And, um, but I go to work, I go to work and I work until I'm done and then I'm done for the mm. day. And I don't pester myself about it. I mean, ideas and thoughts about what you're into are going around in your mind. And this is, you know, when the during the writing process you can be kind of a pain to the people around you because you tend to be very involved in that world um so it's you know it's kind of important to maybe you know pick up a different a book on a different kind of subject or go see that film or go just out to drinks with a friend even if you're talking a little bit about your writing um just get different perspectives and and you know be careful you don't get too immersed in it because it's it's a lonely it's a very uh it's nerve-wracking and it's you know it can be there are days when you you leave the project thinking you're you know i'm isaacson i mean i've got this this is going to be the greatest thing ever and you return the next morning you start reading what you wrote and you just go what was i thinking <laughs> you know there are just it's um I described it in a notebook that I the beginning of a notebook once that I you know where I jot down ideas and and a little bit of journaling uh, as being like a a um, this incredibly vast 
beautiful, limit, almost limitless prison. And, you're, and you find yourself there and there's nobody else there. Mm-hmm. And you have to try to find your way back out. And it's glorious, but it's so painful. You know, it just is, it just has, writing is a, it's a, it's a, you know, I mean, if you're, if you're writing screenplays uh, with a group or comedy, you know, if you're, you know, if you're working for the late show, it's different, but if you're writing fiction, non narrative, nonfiction, those kinds of books, uh, the process there are people who love it. There are people who just, you know, like I can't wait to sit down and just work and then I go and I play and, you know, I don't know how they do it, but it's um, for me anyway, very nerve wracking. And especially when I get to that third draft, uh, that's when I start really wringing my hands. Cause I know I'm getting to the point now where I'm going to submit. And that is, uh, you know, you're, it's a subjective universe. Mm-hmm. Not everybody's going to like your work. And, you know, you just have to be okay with that. You just have to be okay with mm-hmm. it. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. How would you describe, like, what the phases that you might go through? Like, you stumble upon Hemison or whatever. It doesn't have to, like, just someone just stumbles on the, on the topic or whatever. Like, oh, my God, yes, this is, this is it. I'm going to be New York Times bestseller. This is going to be great. That's the first stage. And then what happens after that? <laughs> I don't think that way. Yeah. I'll uh, just be honest with you. I'm not motivated that way. Um, I don't think most writers are, frankly, professional writers. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I don't. I think that's setting yourself up for failure. The, the better way to look at it is I'm going to sink my teeth into this. And I'm gonna. I'm not letting go until I get it to a place where I'm confident I did the best possible job I could on this mm. at this time in my life. And that is how I approach all of my creative work. You know, if there's at some point you, if you, you know, a lot of people don't. A lot of people have that unfinished novel or finished novel. You know uh sitting in mothballs and they never really go for it you know it's a hard thing to put yourself out there to the world um i wish people did it more often because i i think self-expression is the one unique characteristic in humankind um it's the only thing really that separates us from the animals from the rest of the animal kingdom mm-hmm. um but yeah it's it's <laughs> i would just say i don't don't go into it thinking you're going to become stephen king or joan collins it's not you know or grisham or whatever it's not a good it's not a good way to set yourself mm-hmm. up it's very hard business i mean we're what are we printing Two hundred and fifty thousand books a year currently um now a lot of that is self-published but um but yeah there are a lot of books out there you know, there are also a lot of humans. Mm-hmm. So um, there are opportunities, but, you know, most books, this is the sad truth. Most books don't sell more than a couple hundred copies. Mm-hmm. Tops. Um, 
So, you know, it's, you need to make sure that you keep, uh, keep your head level about how things are going. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Trish trying to keep that. Making connections is important and can really lead to bigger things. Mm. What about, uh, so would you say just like trying to keep your level headed as possible? Don't get over inflated. Don't celebrate too much. If you've like, feel like you finished like that first draft, just like you're in the process, you're not at a high point in the process. You're just at a point and there's still much, much more to go. I mean, I, there'll be people listening to your show that think, no, I'm going to be as positive as I can be about this. And that's cool. Mm -hmm. That's good. You know, I mean, that's great. Um, I, you know, I would just reiterate that most of the books out there don't sell more than a couple hundred copies. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you may think you're writing the great American novel, but there are a lot of people out there publishing books every year that, think they're writing a great American novel. Yeah. So I, for me, I temper that, you know, yeah. this book, I've got a lot more traction from this book. Um, I'm a lot better at strategizing what I'm writing now than when I started. That comes with experience. Um, yeah, I, it's not, uh, not an easy world. Yeah. Yeah. Chuck Palahniuk said, uh, said if you're going to write a book write it for a therapeutic reason that way when it doesn't sell that many copies at least you got that therapeutic benefit <laughs> yep yep yeah i really agree with that i you know i think that uh um i'm writing research uh oriented i'm writing histories and i actually really love that you know I mean, for me personally i really I'm into the children's fiction world. I'm into documentary film world. I'm into uh, motion pictures and telling stories in different ways. Um, but I really have enjoyed the process of getting to know these two individuals and the work that they were in and the people that supported them and worked around them. It's such a rich uh, environment that uh, it's it's hard not to be uh, compelled and, and feel really personally gratified by the experience. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, at that point, you're kind of bulletproof, you know, um, it, it, it just, uh, yeah, I, I, I love the process. Mm -hmm. I love the process. What would you, uh, what other kind of like advice would you, could you give from like your experience that you would tell someone writing a book that, um, uh, so like that could make it easier on them. Like you said, you've got different strategies and stuff and, you know, stuff that you do that's kind of makes it easier and why it makes it easier, you think, and also things that you've done wrong and how those were made it harder, harder on yourself. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I would say, you know, you can, uh, in terms of strategy, you know, you're going to be pretty deep into your process before you start to unfold some of this. Mm -hmm. But when you get to a point where you feel like you have uh, a certain depth of knowledge or you are quote unquote an expert on your topic, mm -hmm. I mean, Dan Lewis at the Huntington refers to me as the Humison scholar, <laughs> you know, more about Milton Humison than I do. That's probably true. Certainly more than his family did. And when, you know, and I'm really close with them and they're, you know, great people. And we've really had a 
a good time learning a lot about their history. I mean, I page through their scrapbooks now and I can tell them who all these people are that they never really understood, you know, didn't know. Um, and that just comes with time. But what I would say down the road is when you get to a point where you, you feel an expert, then, and you want to start the process of feeling out different publishers, you know, I, you know, it's good to network. If you know people who are writers or in the writing game, one place or another, go hang out at, uh, you know, um, book signings and, uh, you know, uh, if there are organizations related to reader groups, et cetera, writing groups, that's some of the good part of being involved in those is you really start to, you develop a network of people that might be able to help you find a manager or, you know, people have different levels of success, different times of their lives. So that's a good thing to know. But what I did when I got to that point where I said, okay, I'm going to write a book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the first thing I did was I reached out to magazines with article ideas. Oh, okay. And um, I approached and so you're starting so and i was i was able to write an article for astronomy magazine for instance in 2012 came out in the january edition and it was just a you know i had used so what i did was i used the knowledge i had and the people that i knew and was working with as leverage in that conversation so they could see me and i you know was they could see that i was somebody who was knowledgeable about the topic i'm not a Rhodes scholar myself i didn't have a phd or any of that other stuff so i needed to have some mm. of that um and so i was able to write that and then once i had that established i am now published in one of the world's most popular astronomy magazines mm -hmm. if not certainly in this country i think it is um um, I then took that with the fact that I knew the family and all this other stuff. And I just, you know, those layers then helped me find a publisher before I even had a manager. Hmm. And I, and you know, the, the funny thing is you hear all these horror stories about, I don't mean to imply at all that this is an easy process, but for me, I went to three publishers and I had a deal. Mm -hmm. Now, part of there were reasons for that. I had a marginalized subject that nobody knew uh, about and needed to be filled in. Mm. Uh, I went to a publisher that was invested in that kind of material. I had, you know, the ear of, you know, um, people in the research industry who were, you know, very well respected, the family, et cetera, et cetera. And now I had this article that was coming out. And I think all of that helped propel. And I had a really good outline with a good prospectus yeah. that, you know, talked about this cool mm -hmm. guy and these crazy things that he did. And so all of that, I think, then helped, you know, when I first approached Springer. Uh, and at first, Maury Solomon, who was my editor at the time, uh, stepped, walked away from it. 
she said she said nah you know it's great it seems like a really neat subject but i i don't know we're not i don't know that we really is gonna fit and then i don't know a few days later she wrote back and said no nah, i changed my mind we're gonna hmm. do it <laughs> and and so yeah i mean it really i was uh, very surprised that it that it went as smoothly as it did mm-hmm. um so yeah so that that is that is, those are a few of the things that you can do. I did, and uh, being really careful. Okay, so screenwriting versus writing, writing. There are definitely different canvases for different um, stories. I think, you know, if you know the environment that you work well in, then it's important to understand that and work in that environment. Mm-hmm. It's also important to understand the subject you're working on and what environment that might play best in. Mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't do that at first, and it took me several years to get off of the track I was on. I was, I was actually developing the story for a screenplay. Mm-hmm. And um, it took me several years of working and talking with Dan and some of the other folks at uh, the Huntington before I realized, yeah, okay, enough suggestions on this. I think I should write a book. Mm-hmm. And so, and that changed my mind. And I'm glad I did. It's a lot easier to go from book to screenplay than from screenplay to book. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, you know, understanding the canvas that you're telling your story on is important. Um, yeah. And then strategize ways that you can develop some momentum. Uh, especially if you're not, if you don't have management and most writers do not. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you want to try and find an established publisher, that is, there are a lot of books that work really well in the, in the self-publishing environment. Um, but, uh, yeah. What would be some examples of like, good self-published book ideas versus getting published by other people. Could you say? Well, one super obvious one is, um, uh, books that are, are, are meant more for marketing purposes. Mm. You're an online personality. There's all these, you know, influencers. Yeah. Now. Uh, if you're an influencer and you've got 20, 30, 40,000 or more followers, Self-publish your book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you you got a giant starting market. Mm-hmm. You know your initial market's huge. So, yeah, man, do yeah. it. You're if you're already good online, uh, you're gonna get more. You get more royalties for a pu- self-published book than you do in the published environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it's you know you have to be a little bit careful about who you go to um a lot of the self-publishers don't print on great material um one of the things one of some of the feedback i've been getting on the new book is just how nice the book looks which was strange i surprised me i didn't see that coming at all you like the way it looks the feel uh okay good i'm I'm glad you're satisfied yeah yeah i know that Um, i feel that same way with i've I've had books that are you know if it's a shitty book like shittily or you know not printed very well you're not afraid yeah. to write in it uh you you treat it like crap and 
But yeah, there's other books yeah. that I have that are like almost, I don't know. They're almost like special. They're just like, Ooh, I'm glad yeah. I have this. I just, I don't, I like reading it. It feels good to hold. And it, that's one thing I heard in yeah. the other podcast that you're in is like, Oh yeah. I never thought about that. Yeah. There's some books that are, yeah. they it almost makes them more special. Yeah. I love it. I think it just looks more professional, mm-hmm. you know, and there are a lot of, uh, there are several outlets out there that Amazon's one of them that uh, do a really professional job, high end job. And of course you've got the Amazon machine behind you. If you get involved with them, I don't know if they're more or less expensive. I'm not in that game, but um, I do some ghostwriting work with people and they find that uh, Google works really well. Mm-hmm. So it's one, one, one of the spots you can go. Um, but yeah, it's just, you know, those are, those are the kinds of books. Some that's one style of book. Um, you know, direct marketing is so key these days and you do make a lot more per book when you self publish. Um, yeah. I don't, uh, you know, other kinds of books, I mean, it could really be any kind of book. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, you know, and then it's just about how much time and energy and money you have to put into uh, developing your audience. Mm-hmm. You know, that's important for every writer. So how, well, what's really? like a good plat? Like, how would you go about doing that? What's a good platform? Cause it's one of those things where people say like, Oh, you need to have an audience. Like you need to build your audience. You need to do this audience, audience, audience. And I'm like, okay, well there's like five social media platforms. There's YouTube, but you're a writer, not a video creator. There's, you know, all this stuff. But what does that mean? Like, what would you do or did do? It's a really good question. I, um, yeah, I mean, I don't, um, I have social media channels that I, that I use for various reasons. I find Instagram to be a visual medium. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't, I do post there from time to time. Um, but, uh, Twitter seems to be a good environment for for getting the word out about because the I think they're it's conversational. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of people think it's confrontational, but that you know that has come with the territory to some extent, mm-hmm. and we'll see what's going on now with that Mr. Musk has yeah. the reins, but. It's, you know, it's, it's, we'll see how that goes. I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't really need to focus on the whether or not it's okay for, you know, people to yell fire in a crowded movie theater or not on Twitter. I'm focused on what I'm focused on. I'm putting out the information I'm putting out. I'm looking for people who are interested in that. Facebook in my, on my, in my world, it happens to be a very good platform. Mm. Why? because a lot of the people who are in astronomy groups and read astronomy haven't really got very far beyond Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, no offense. It's still a really good storytelling medium and there are billions of people using it. So it's, you know, it's, that's a very easy one. It's way, way more popular than Twitter. Yeah. Um, so those two, I think Twitter and, and Facebook really work a little bit better for writers specifically Hmm. and then you know if you're into if you're writing business books or something of that nature 
LinkedIn is, an, is a good resource. Um, LinkedIn is also a good resource for connecting with people, other writers yeah. and people in the industry. And so, yeah, so, but yeah, I don't, I don't know that you need necessarily to have it depending on what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, but it can be useful. And I would say, you know, I have friends who use Instagram and they do videos on Instagram all the time. Yeah. But they, they're, you know, it's still visual. You know, they're bodybuilders or they're, you know, online influencers mm -hmm. or artists they're or... fashionistas or artists. Yeah. And, you know, so it tends to be more visual. Mm. Okay. Well, last question, Ron. Like, reading Hubble's reading about Hubble, reading about Humison and also in your own life, was there any, do you have like any advice for leading a successful life that maybe isn't, I, I try to get people to stay away from like what I call dollar store advice. We're just like kind of, uh, follow your passion or, uh, be yourself. Something that's something that you've maybe kind of found to be true and, um, has aided you like maybe a perspective or or anything like that. It could be white bread advice. Just give me, give me, give me some more than just be yourself. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think there is a lot to that, but I think people struggle with that. I think that's, uh, I think uh, it comes up a lot because people struggle with their own identity mm. quite a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and yet the spirit looms large. I mean, the, the we wouldn't be anywhere without memory. Mm -hmm we probably wouldn't have made it as a species if we didn't have the memories that we have. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I think it's, I think probably the, the, the thing I find most important in my daily routine is to, is to protect the notion that the people I interact with, um, on a, a momentary basis, to those that they interact with on a more constant basis, they see me in a certain way and they, they take something from their interaction with mm. me. And so I, I am, I am compelled by the notion of presenting the best possible, uh, experience mm. <laughs> in interacting with me that I can. Mm. And it, life is hard. I mean, there, there, things happen to you so you, you realize that there are times when you know you're not going to be in the best spirits mm -hmm. um but uh, but but even in those moments it's important to remember how important every little moment can be to another individual mm -hmm. um it can be it doesn't even need to re relate to them directly but there could be something that they see you do mm -hmm that compels them in a way that's more positive than they were the moment before. And uh, if we're going to start picking each other up, if we're really going to start making change, the spirit understanding the importance of, of that spirit as relates to our relationships, not the, you know, the stuff that people talk about, you know, Holy spirit and all of that mm -hmm. stuff, which is in itself a thing. I'm not going to get into it, but the human spirit, that uh, roadmap <laughs> that we leave people with about who we are is, I don't know a thing that's more important in human experience than that. Mm.
Well said. Well said. Cool. Well, is there is there anywhere where people should look for you or find more about you? Yeah, you can go on my website, uh, runballer.com. Uh, my books are on there. My history's on there. Some of my friends are on there, people I've worked with, and some of the experiences I've had. Uh, your listeners can go to the contact page and contact me and get 10% off books, and I'll sign a copy for it uh, for them and sign it and send it to them. Uh, they just need to give me their information and we can hook it up on, on Venmo or whatever. And, and uh, I'm happy to do that for your listeners. Uh, links to my social media and everything are right on there. So um, come on, come on, come all. I'm happy to hear from you. And I'd love to get feedback on the, on the stories. Awesome. Sweet, Ron. Well, thanks for coming on and uh, hopefully you had a good time. I had a great time, Jacob. Thanks for all the really interesting questions and conversation. It was wonderful. Thanks.